Now, I know that there are a lot of skeptics in the world, and I'm afraid that there are a lot of skeptics in the church, even when it comes to the subject of prayer. I heard of a little boy named Johnny. He was five years old. He was a bright kid. And he walked up to his dad one day, and he said, uh, I would like a baby brother. And along with that, he went ahead and said, and, and I'll do whatever it takes. What do you need me to do to get a baby brother? And his dad, a pretty smart 35-year-old man, paused a moment. Then he said, I'll tell you what, Johnny. If you'll pray every day for two months for a baby brother, I guarantee you that God will give you one. He will answer your prayer. And Johnny, he was like, okay. So he responded to the challenge, and he went up to his bedroom right then, and he prayed for a baby brother. And every day he got up, he prayed for his baby brother, that he would get a baby brother. And a whole month went by of him praying every day for a baby brother. But then he began to get skeptical. You know how we are. We start doubting things, even though we believe things. We start doubting them. And so he thought, I'm going to check around the neighborhood. So a little five-year-old went around to his friends in the neighborhood, and he found out that this was a very unusual thing that none of the kids in his neighborhood had ever heard of praying for just two months for a baby brother, and suddenly you get a baby brother. So he began to ask around and says, in the history of their neighborhood, such a thing had never happened. So he became even more skeptical, talked to a few more people, and and after a few days he was like, I'm not going to pray anymore. So he prayed for a month, but he quit praying because he didn't believe it happened. He was totally skeptical that it could happen. Well, then a month rolled by, and his mother uh, went into the hospital. And then they called little Johnny to the bedside, and they opened up a bundle, and there next to his mother was not one baby brother, but two baby brothers. And he was just ecstatic. And so Johnny's daddy turned to him and says, Now, aren't you glad you prayed? And little Johnny hesitated and then looked at him and says, yes, I am. Aren't you glad I stopped when I did? So that's we can be skeptical and yet believing. And I think that's where a lot of us are. We believe, but we're a little skeptical. I, I read this. This is in an interesting book. It's a very old book. 1893 is when it was printed. It's called Uh, Touching Incidents and Remarkable Answers to Prayer by S.B. Shaw. Now, S.B. Shaw doesn't tell his stories. He tells a collection of stories. And I want to make reference to this book uh, toward the end of this lesson. He talks about a story that was submitted by Dr. W.W. Bennett uh, about a man named John Esther, who was supposedly a pioneer circuit-riding preacher from Virginia, a hundred years before the book was published. So the book was published in 1893. So somewhere in the 1700s, this this story comes to us from early America in Virginia. And it represents uh, this John Esther as a man of great power as a preacher and that he had a faith that just transcended uh, he was irresistible in his appeal, and he, when he prayed, they say it was like talking to God. Well, 
there was an extraordinary display of faith by him in Brunswick, Virginia, at what's called the Merritt's Meeting House, where there was a quarterly meeting of believers, and it was a vast crowd. And in that day, there weren't very many big buildings. And the crowd was so large that they held their service outside in a beautiful grove of trees. In the midst, though, of these exercises, suddenly a heavy cloud was seen coming. Uh, it was sweeping toward them, and it was dark, and they just knew it was going to virtually wash them away because there was no building anywhere in that area that could contain the multitude, and they would just have to disperse. And they were about to disperse when the preacher John Esther rose up, and he said, Brethren, be still while I call upon God to stay the clouds till his word can be preached to perishing sinners. Now that's what's recorded that he said. And so then he knelt down in front of the entire crowd on the platform and he offered a fervent prayer that God would stay the rain, that the preaching and the word might go on and afterward that God would send refreshing showers. While he was praying, the witnesses say, that the angry cloud, as swiftly as it had rolled up on him, was suddenly, all of a sudden seen to literally part in the middle. And part of it passed on one side of them, and part of it passed on the other side of them, leaving that field in a large space of several hundred yards beyond their circumference, totally dry, raining on either side of them. And then as it got past them, joining back together, and continuing on. Later, not only did it not rain where they were that time, but later, it then that night, it rained and watered all the ground that it missed. You know, what's interesting to me is I tell that story, and I know some of you are sitting there saying, yeah, sure. You see, because 2 Peter 3, verse 3, says scoffers will come in the last days. Guess where we are? I'm afraid that we have more scoffers who claim to be believers than we like to accept. Some do not believe, even in the church, that God answers prayer. At least he doesn't answer prayer now, else God would be partial. And I've heard these arguments. Let me give you a couple of them. They'll use uh, Acts 10 and verse 34 when it says, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. So if God were to answer your prayer and not answer my prayer, then God would be partial. See, it sounds right when you hear it, but I'm afraid that isn't correct. If he didn't do for you what he did for me, then he's somehow partial. That's not really correct, and it's not a biblical argument. Uh, it's not valid because God has what we call spiritual discernment. John 9, verse 31, we know that God does not hear sinners. So there are people who pray that don't get their answer, and they shouldn't get their answer. It also shows that God literally has discretion in Luke chapter 4, verses 23 through 27, when he says, Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, are you saying that all of the lepers in Israel were just sinners and God didn't heal them? Or does God have the ability to show discretion and heal one and not heal another? Hmm. 
Well, apparently so, because that's in the Bible. But more than that, some will go on to argue, well, okay, so I get what you're saying. Let me give you one that you can't answer. If there's two Christians and they're both farmers and they're next to each other, and one farmer, because of the type of crop he's raising, needs to not rain right now because he's about to harvest his crop. The farmer next to him actually needs rain because of the type of crop he's raising. Now you've got a dilemma. God's in, how are you going to solve that one? Obviously, God doesn't answer prayer. If he answers one, he's violated one. If he answers the other, he's violated the other. But that's not valid. It may sound like you got a gotcha kind of thing, but God's not partial, but he is good to all. And what does the scripture actually teach? Matthew 5, verse 45, he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, he either does that or he doesn't do that. So I'm going to go with what Jesus said and that he does do that. And then, what I said a moment ago, God can show discretion. You say, you're telling me he can show discretion like that and, and make it rain one place and not another? Well, let me just read what the scripture says. Amos chapter 4 and verse 7. I made it rain on one city and I withheld rain from another city. I think he can do that. So the bottom line is some of the arguments that supposedly are smart are just skeptical arguments because somebody's had a bad experience and their life didn't turn out the way they wanted it to turn out maybe on some issue. So you still believe in prayer maybe, and that's great, but likely if you're a little bit skeptical especially, you struggle to pray. It's not that you struggle to believe that God answers prayer maybe, you just struggle to actually get around to pray. And so this lesson is really about that because that's exactly the question that the apostles asked Jesus because they struggled the same way. I want to give you three ways that we are taught by Jesus to pray. The first one is in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. We are taught to pray through patterns. Luke chapter 11 Verse 1 says, So it came to pass as he, that is Jesus, was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus uses this moment as a motivation to pray. How does he do that? Well, one way he motivates it is through imitation, an imitation pattern. He had been praying, and he allowed them to to see him praying. And that had motivated them to want to pray like he prayed. And so how did Jesus pray? Well, we know from Luke 5 and verse 16 that he often prayed alone without anybody hearing what he said. We also know that Matthew 15 verse 36, he prayed with others so that people could actually hear him pray and see him pray. From Luke 24 and verse 30, we know that he prayed over meals. Many of you do that. And then in John 17, verse 20, we know that he prayed for believers and even 
future believers. So he left an imitation, a pattern of prayer in his life, so much of a pattern that it had motivated them to even ask about praying. And so sometimes seeing a really good pattern makes you want to imitate it and makes you want to pray. But he also left an instruction pattern here because he shows, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to get into this in detail, but basically there's kind of a rhythm to his prayer that shows respect for the Father, and then there's an order of what you ask for first. You ask for God's will and his things to be done first. Then you ask for the things you need and then all those topics, and then you end with something uh, praiseworthy toward the Father. So that's kind of the pattern he left for us. But patterns that uh, we observe can be observed in others as well. Uh, you can observe in good Christians, and so many times I've seen this. I've seen godly men, kind of like the story I told earlier, when you see someone really godly uh, answer uh, I mean, I ask a prayer, and then we see an answer come. And that encourages us to pray. So we just need motivation to pray, and that is these patterns and, and patterns of instruction. So we struggle, but there are ways that we are taught to pray through patterns. The second truth that I want you to get is that we're taught to pray through persistence or through parables that tell about persistence. In Luke chapter 11, he goes on to say in verse 5, And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend? And that's important, that word friend. A friend, and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. And back in those days, they had pretty much one bedroom house, and everything was in that one room, and they all slept together. They even brought the donkeys and stuff into the room, and so they kind of slept on a platform and put the donkeys on the other side. So they were all together in one bed. That was pretty common in that day. So they really didn't want to give up, get up because it wakes everybody up. But verse 8 says, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, <laughs> it's going to wake everybody up anyway, because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. As soon as he shouts out, no, I'm in bed, he woke everybody else up anyway. So basically the motivation to pray that's being taught right there is this friendship persistence. Now, uh, it's not because they are friends, but because they are friends and he was persistent that he did get up. So if they hadn't been friends, he'd never gone to them, but it's friendship persistence. And that's taught also in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 18, again, this friendship persistence when he tells another parable about persistence in prayer, and he tells about this unjust judge and a widow going to this unjust judge. This is in Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8. And she keeps asking, coming back and asking. And the unjust judge ends up avenging her and taking her side, which she had been done wrong. And he answers her request, not because uh, he was just and not because he really cared about the widow, but because he's getting tired of being pestered by her. And so the persistence got her answer. So persistence, and, and he gives us a couple parables right here in this one situation that persistence shows us 
through these stories that God does answer our prayers. And so if persistence gets you an answer, and that's the teaching of Jesus, then what he's really doing is teaching us to pray with persistence. So we struggle, but here's a way that we're taught to pray through persistence, through these couple of stories, and he's trying to motivate us with those stories to pray. So if you said, well, I prayed for it and he didn't do it, well, okay, that's great, but if you show a little persistence and keep pushing God, pray until something happens, then you might see an answer with a little bit of persistence, and that's the message. The third uh, teaching here of how Jesus taught us to pray, we are taught to pray, to pray, through promises. So he ends this discussion with his uh, disciples who ask him to teach us to pray with verses 9 through 13, and he says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be open. So that's kind of an everyone promise. He goes on to say, though, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? And then he sums up in verse 13, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? That's a really key statement there. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Not just give anything, but give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So a couple of thoughts that you need to get from this about God's promises. One is there's an everyone promise. That means it's kind of a blanket teaching ask and you receive and then he says and everyone who asks now we talked about this last week but i don't i don't want to get into this too detailed that there are exceptions to this but it's pretty much a blanket statement though god kind of wants everybody to pray and so he wants to answer everybody's prayer and so that's a big motivator if you feel like well i'm not really good enough well who is and Or, well, I don't know what really ought to be done. Well, who does? So God wants you to pray to him just the same. So there's that everyone promise that if you would ask, you'd be surprised. All of a sudden, he would answer, and he'd give you exactly what you asked for. I've always been amazed at how God has given me exactly what I asked for. Now, the times he didn't give me exactly what I asked for, it was always much better than I could come up with. So, But the exactly thing was always amazing to me. It was almost like I knew it said that, but when I saw it, it was like, wow, he did exactly what I asked for. And that's happened thousands of times, I suppose. And then there's this extravagant promise, though, at the, at the base of this, how much more well, you're, I mean, if you'll do this for your own children, if you'll give them what they need when they need it, and who doesn't do that? I mean, you brought them into this world. you got to take care of them. But, but how much more, he says, will your heavenly Father do it? I mean, he's in the heavens above. How much more will he give his Holy Spirit to you? So he wants to give you what you need. So that should motivate us to pray this, this everyone promise, this extravagant promise. You know, promises... Uh, are fulfilled for the great and the small. 
Um, you need to understand that this God doesn't just answer, say, King's request and forget about the little guy that barely can uh, keep his job. He answers everybody's prayer. And when we see it and when we experience it in our own life, it motivates us to pray. And so we struggle, but here's a way that we're taught to pray through these promises. So when they asked, Lord, teach us to pray, he basically gave them three things. He gave them patterns, patterns of how to do it and patterns of just follow him, his own pattern. Uh, he gave them persistence. He gave them parables of persistence of note that the friend didn't get up because he was his friend, but because of his persistence. The unjust judge did not answer the widow because he was a just judge, but because of her persistence. And then he gives the story of these promises of how God will do it for everyone, and then God will do it in a more extravagant way than you could imagine. He will bless you in a way that you couldn't have thought of. So when you pray, you're like, well, I know what I would ask for, but then he always answers in a way that is better, a little better than what I ever said. So we know God answers prayers unless, of course, we're pure skeptics. I mean, how many people do you think? I would say 90% of the population believe God answers prayer. I mean, they believe in God. They believe in prayer. And we know God answers prayers unless we no longer believe the Bible is true. So we know God answers prayer unless we don't know the power of God. Unless we've gotten to the point where we think we're so smart uh, we don't think God can do these things, like the arguments I gave you at the beginning. Uh, because of other people's examples, though, often I know God answers prayer. I've seen people pray that just to hear what they were saying was changing me. And because of the answers to prayers that we've all seen, we know God answers prayer. Uh, remember last week I read this passage. I want to read it again. Mark 11, 20 through 24 says, Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, How faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. God has to be a God of truth or he's not God at all. Remember that book I made reference to that came from the 1893 timeline. S.B. Shaw wrote it, Touching Incidents and Remarkable Answers to Prayer. He records another story from someone else called Lily Blake Blackney Howell. That's a, a long name, four, four names. That's unusual. But this is the story that she gave, and I'd like to read it to you just really quick. A prominent minister in Canada relates. So it wasn't even her story. She got it from another minister. She said, he said, I am frequently impressed by the Spirit to perform actions at the time of accountable to myself. These impressions are so vivid 
that I dare not disobey them. Now, remember, this comes from the 1800s. Some time ago, and now he's telling the story, some time ago on a stormy night, I was suddenly impressed to go to the distant house of an aged couple and there to pray. So imperative was the call that I harnessed the horse, 1800s, right? I harnessed the horse and drove to the spot, so it must have been a buggy, fastened to the horse to the shed and entered the house unperceived by a door which had been left open. So the door was cracked open, and he just knelt down in the doorway. There, kneeling down, I poured out my petition to God in an audible voice for the divine protection over the inmates, the people that lived there, after which I departed and returned home. It was an elderly couple. He went there. The door had been left open. This was way back in that day when people would do that. And he knelt down in the doorway and prayed for them. Months after, I was visiting uh, one of the principal prisons in Canada and moving amongst the prisoners, I was accosted by one of them who claimed to know me. I had no recollection of the convict and was fairly startled when he later said, do you remember going to such a house one night and offering prayer for the inmates? I told him I did and asked how he came to know anything about it. He said, I had gone to that house to steal a sum of money, known to be in the possession of the old man. When you drove into the yard, I thought you were he, and indeed uh, I intended to kill you while you were hitching your horses. I saw when you spoke to the horse that you were a stranger, not the man's voice. I followed you into the house and heard your prayer. You prayed, God to protect the old people from violence of any kind and especially from murder and if there was any hand uplifted to strike them that is the old couple if there were any hand uplifted to strike them that it ought to be paralyzed then the prisoner pointed to his right arm which hung lifelessly by his side saying do you see that arm it was paralyzed on the spot and I have never moved it since of course I left the place without doing any harm but I'm here now for other offenses oh sure you may say to me uh, it didn't happen for me so that's proof it really doesn't happen so I don't believe that but I say to you it did happen for another that's proof to me that sometimes it does happen. And I don't want to miss my opportunity at the mountain that's moved by saying, oh, it doesn't happen. Why would you want to do that? You see, I want to be a part of whatever God's doing, don't you? I want to have the kind of faith that's not skeptical because it hadn't happened for me yet. Or I don't think he does stuff like that. I want to have the faith, well, he said it, I'm going to do it. He may not do it for me, but I'm still going to do it because he's done it for others. He might do it for me. What he's done for others, I believe he will do for you. So hold that thought to pray because the first response to the gospel is really not to pray. The first response to the gospel in Acts chapter 2 was to hear what he was saying and try to understand it. They were taught about Jesus. They needed to hear that. 
They needed to understand it. They needed to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And after they believed it, they were so struck with that that they said, well, what are we going to do now? And by that, they were confessing their faith that it was real. And so Peter stood up and said, repent. So we all need to repent, you know, if we really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he said, repent and be baptized. So if you have done all those things and you repent, you need to be baptized. And he says why. How, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ. But the why is for the remission of sins. And the blessing is you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so all that comes to you, that's your place. That's what we are to do so that we become partners in this walk of faith. And once we're partners, then as a father to a son and a son to the father, we need to communicate. And so if you haven't done those things, you need to focus on doing those things first. And we'll help you any way we can. But if you've done those things, then you need to learn to pray and to not be a skeptic, but to believe that God, the great God of the universe, would move for you. Believe it today, and he will. Pray today. God bless you.